Just a quick word from our affiliates before we jump into the episode. SafePoint Loan Working App is a really simple way for you to manage loan working. Utilising what three words to get you pinpoint accuracy on the location of your people when you really need it. Get yourself a discount using the link and code in the description of this episode. Let's jump into today's podcast. This show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety and welcome back to another episode of our mini-series Safety 1 and Safety 2. Let's jump into the intro and I'll tell you more about today's guest. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety. Crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Rebranded Safety is the podcast channel and YouTube channel doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of health and safety. So if you're new here, hit those subscribe buttons, follow buttons, whatever button it is on whatever platform you are listening and or watching us on. So we are following up with another episode of our Safety 1 and Safety 2 mini-series. And today's guest I actually recorded a hell of a, hell of a, hell of a long time ago. Like a really long time ago. And I've been nervous but also excited to put this one out. And you'll realise why in a minute. And I'll tell you more in the Reflection episode as well next week. Um, and originally, if you go back to the Todd Conklin episode, where which was the first one of the series, and I kind of read out the structure, you'll notice that today's guest was actually towards the end of the mini-series. Because I wanted to use today's guest as kind of like a caveat to everything you've heard. I wanted you to be like, oh yeah, safety two is the best thing since sliced bread. And then get and listen to this person who is vehemently against this kind of safety two movement, really. Um, and I wanted you to be like, oh, and that kind of engaged maybe a little bit of critical thinking. That was my aim around this. Um, however, I, I bumped back and forth as to whether to have him towards the end or towards the beginning. And, and, and I just could not decide. And then this morning I decided, no, I'm putting him out next week. Um, so I brought it forward. And here it is. I'm recording a new intro because, you know, I'm just that sketchy and unorganized actually it's really organized but i just decided that i wanted to bring this one forward so today's guest is dominic cooper um if you don't know who dominic cooper is he is well pretty much a legend in the behavioral based safety space he is uh, owner of an award-winning company a professor writer researcher the whole shebang a very very popular on social media um He's got quite a big following and he's very, very prominent on social media and he's quite well known for being vehemently against this Safety 2 movement. So let's get into our conversation with Dom. Don't forget to check out next week's episode where I talk about where I reflect on this conversation with Dom. Um, and you'll get to realise and understand why I was unbelievably nervous about this episode and unbelievably excited as well. And this is probably one of the more challenging interviews I ever had. But nonetheless, a great conversation with Dom, and I actually really like the guy. So let's get into our conversation with Professor Dominic Cooper. Dom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to meet you. 
And it's a pleasure to meet you too. And very, uh, I'm very happy we can get you on. I, I love a person who's extremely passionate about a subject, and I think I think that's what you are, mate. Um, and I think we're gonna have a. I'm really looking forward to this chat today. I think it's gonna be great. So why don't you, at first, just for anyone who's been living potentially under a very large rock for a long time, give us a, a bit of an insight into yourself, but your background, etc., and how how you kind of got to where you are now. I suspect if you can get that into a couple of minutes okay well um i guess i left home very early when i was about 13 uh went on the hippie trail then joined the military when i was 17 i was in the royal engineers uh when i left the military uh, i went down the job center and the hope i could find was scaffolding so i'm an advanced scaffolder by trade um, when I was about 29 30, I was doing the form work on 20 to go to night school. When the night school uh, was persuaded to go full time for a bachelor's degree, which I did at North East London Poly, which is now University of East London. And then I worked my way through, went to the, I got a degree in psychology, and then I went and got a master's degree in industrial psychology at the University of Hull. And from there, I went to a PhD at uh, Manchester at UMIST, where I was involved in um, introducing behaviour-based safety into the UK and the construction industry. So my work background and my academic background came together at that point. Um, and that was really good and highly successful stuff. And from there, I was asked by industry, for example, Cortel Cellophane down in Bridgewater and Somerset, can you come and do what you did there in the factories? We can try. So we went down there and we reduced our incident rate by 82% inside nine months. So it worked, everything worked. And then the more we did that, the more people were asking. Uh, we started a business called Be Safe uh, in Hull at the time. We won awards through IOSH for the writings on behavioral safety and for training packs and whatnot. And then in 2000, I think it was 2000, I was in Singapore, and then I was invited. Uh, did I want to consider being a professor of safety in America? And we thought about it for a while. We had a family discussion, and then we came over in 2001 to in Bloomington, and it was a visiting professor in industrial organization psychology at Bloomington. Okay, so we've written many books, Safety Culture, on BBS leadership. So I have a much wider view of safety than just BBS, where people put me in the box. So a very, a very kind of oh, jam-packed career, actually. I kind of, we were speaking just before, weren't we? And my kind of places that's taken you all over the world, which is just fascinating. And I, and I want to kind of talk today quite heavily about one thing that you've written in particular, which is a... I don't know whether it must be one of the most popular things you've written. I mean, within the first hour, you had like hundreds of reactions uh from the article article called how different is safety differently it just took off and i, I remember reading it and being like this is great <laughs> <laughs> so how how did you come about writing that what inspired what inspired you to write all the years you've been in it you've written books but that article what was it that made you go i need to write this article so i was vilified on social media i social scientists to a qualitative scientist. I'm quantitative. So I've said, well, look, you're a scientist, you're in a university, 
you said all of this, well, what's the impact on safety performance? Because at the end of the day, that's what all counts in safety. Are we saving lives? Are we reducing injuries? And so on. So um, anyway, uh, from there, I asked, does this work? And I was jumped on all over from various people from the safety differently group, the safety two group. And in the end, I said, okay, let's take a proper look at, I came across a, an article that challenged everyone to think about um, definitions of safety, the way that people in businesses focus on. So I took up the challenge and put it all in one document. And having done that, I thought, all right, we'll put it online. So I put it online. And it generated a lot of interest. A lot of people thought it was fair and balanced. And I had declared a bias because I'd said I didn't yeah. think there was much in it. Mm -hmm. um, but I've tried to be fair. So I was mm -hmm. open, very honest. And anyway, 95% of the comments were positive. We haven't heard anything from um the safety differently people they didn't say anything and then tim marsh asked me if i'd heard from eric holnagel and i said no i said i'd love to hear from sydney um but interesting to hear what eric's got to say two weeks later eric said safety differently is safety one and of course that was lighting the blue touch paper so that's led to all of these debates that we're all having now which, if you think about it, weren't really happening a month ago before I wrote the article. They mm. just weren't happening. There was a lot of people arguing on um, LinkedIn or whatever, bit by bit, but they, there was no debate per se. It was a given that all of this was the way forward. And all I've done is just said, well, hey, guys, think on, because there's, there's an alternative um, viewpoint. And that's what I expressed. And there's, there's there's so much to kind of discuss here, isn't there? But okay, then let's go straight from the, the talk about how safety is defined. So you you kind of quite clearly cover this in in your article quite well, and and I think that from my point of view as a, as a kind of I would say a, probably a young safety professional. I feel like sometimes it gets a little bit overcomplicated, um, but a nice simple example I've come across is safety two would be the presence of positives uh, from, from probably from Decker and then from Eric's or, or maybe not even Eric, but like the kind of resilience point of view would be being successful in varying conditions. Um, and then the, what they would say would be the safety one view is as few things as going wrong as possible. Um, and then, and then again, you've got or as many things to go right as possible, brackets under varying conditions, close brackets. So it gets a bit complicated. I think you addressed this like reasonably well in, in, your, in your article. So I'd be interested to get your points on that. But also I'd be interested to get your opinion of like, are we not just all arguing over the same point here? Ah, right. Okay. Now that's a good one. So we're looking at this from two different perspectives. Originally, Safety 2, Holnagel was saying that Safety 2 is not to replace Safety 1, it was to complement. So that mm -hmm. meant we got into the lagging and leading indicator piece. Okay, that's basically what it is. You take all these new views, they're saying, we've got to have leading indicators and we've got to make sure it's positive. And then the Safety 1 say, yeah, okay, so we've got lagging indicators and leading indicators. 
So the, the, the new view, which is all three of those different um, approaches yeah. uh, to safety, different from safety one, um, is basically saying we've got to have leading indicators and are not recognising that in traditional safety, leading indicators have been there for a, a long while. So we can talk about in BBS, we've got the percent safe score. That is a leading indicator. It's predictive of incidents because the checklist, if you do the BBS right, we'll discuss BBS later, um, is linked to accidents anyway. Then we have visible leadership. So since the mid 1990s, people used to say, uh, management's commitment is really important to safety. And I'm standing there and Robin and us at UMIS and we're going, really? Well, actually, what difference does it make? So we switched the question, literally, what difference does it make? So we started tracking leadership behaviours as part of a BBS process. So we joined um, the workplace safety observations from the guys with the managerial uh, leadership observations uh, right across Britain, most of the ones that we were doing. And we were doing that in mid-1995, and we've been able to answer a lot of questions around that. But leadership behaviour is a leading indicator. So again, this new view is not coming up with anything new. It's old, but people have forgotten this stuff is around there, or they weren't, they weren't aware of it to begin with. So, in, for example, in our peer process, we would have that percent safe score. We have the visible leadership scores. We have the corrective action rate, which is the number of items completed divided by the number uh, reported um, and multiplied by 100. We have the rewards of people being praised. We, we look at the consequence management. We have uh, information on the systems that are going wrong, on whether it's substandard equipment, the physical environment, you've got some environmental variables. We've got the management system. Is it poor job methods, poor job systems, poor managerial behavior, poor ineffective leadership behavior? What is it? And then we've also got the personal thing. So we're talking about human error, failures in task planning, knowledge and rule-based mistakes. And then we've got failures in execution, which is distractions and memory failures. And then we've got behavioral choices, which can be taking shortcuts, uh, can be done driven because there's failings in the organizational systems. And because people learn to take shortcuts, very often, if you don't have the right equipment in the right place at the right time, and you can still do the job safely, you just learn to take a shortcut. So, and then of course, there's the optimizing behaviors in there as well, or thrill seeking. So some people will do it for fun, taking risks, and um, that happens. Um, but some people think that their way of doing it is better than what everyone else knows, so they do it that way. But there's a, basically three types of behavioral choice. Well, one of the distinctions between safety one and, and the new view is that all the new views say that human errors or behaviors are all driven by the systems. You can't blame people. You can't hold people to account. And that's not right. That is just not right. I can remember when I was on the tools, they'd give me a laborer for the day or another fixer on a project, on a site, and that guy would turn up in the morning and within five minutes I knew he was going to kill me if I let him carry on working next to me and I'd send them back to the yard. I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes to do this job safely. Go away. I'm would, not going to work you, with you. Would you not say though at that point that 
that that that person that that come to work with you and you sent them back because you you saw them as a potential i suppose risk to your your own personal safety um that that person will never learn though then but but you just saying i'm not going to work with you well i'm not so sure they were they've been scaffolding longer than i had and more often than not they were still drunk or on drugs from the night before (laughs) so what were they going to learn yeah it's difficult all right but when you give people a free pass and say we never blame anybody we never hold anyone to account that's just not right do, do they say that though i mean even in Sid, sydney's yes. work in his kind of just culture work he does say that the accountability is still there it still exists it's just it's just asking for the context around that which which to be honest i think is very similar to what um kind of professor scott geller talks about and his point of view of behavioral based safety is that the environment defines your behavior so it's more looking at and asking the question why did that colleague of yours think that it was acceptable to come to work under the influence of drugs um as opposed to saying he he wanted to get paid for the day the guy wants to get paid for the day because we were all on peace work and he thought he'd get away with it simple Mm -hmm. as that okay but the, going back to Geller's point about the environment defining behavior, the, the, the environment doesn't define behavior. The situation influence. If you optimize the situation, you optimize a behavior. It doesn't define a behavior. It's a different thing. But equally, a behavior can influence the situation. So we, you and I are in this situation right now, yes? Mm-hmm. So we're talking to each other. And the situation that we're in is dictating our behavior. You're asking questions, I'm answering them. Now, either one of us can change this situation by pulling the plug. Yeah. The safety to people, the new view people, don't recognise that. And that's a problem for me. Okay. Again, again does it um, come back to, to my point that it's then on, on, I don't want you to pull the plug. So it's on me to create an environment in which you don't need to, the feet, you don't, feel the need to want to pull the plug i think would be a well be you a could argue reason. that you could argue that but that just means that all you do then is allocate the blame to someone else and it's i mean one of the reasons hop came about and i watched uh, scott geller and todd conklin debate this with tom kraus in 2017 okay mm-hmm. and they were both saying the same thing literally that the situation determines behavior which it does but you can't keep blaming and putting the blame on all the systems because all you do then is bypassing responsibility and accountability whose fault is it really if you've made and you've given you've optimized the situation to the nth degree and then the guy chooses to do something different how do you hold that guy accountable? Why don't you hold the guy accountable? It doesn't make sense, you know? Nobody wants to automatically jump on the guy and beat him up. When, I mean, we've put in processes with consequence management, and very often there's a just culture system where you have um, some kind of guide. Patrick Hudson came up with some kind of guide as to when and how you punish somebody, which was based on reasons work. So we put in, in peer in particular, we put in this little consequence management piece that's a padding between the guy's behavior and getting into these formal uh, disciplinary procedures. And we do, we monitor praise. 
And then we say, if you've done everything great, hit, praise the guy. If the guy's done one or two behaviors unsafely, but most of what he's doing right, coach the guy. If the guy hasn't got the right piece of equipment, because for one reason or other, he didn't get it, then call a halt to the project if it's that dangerous and get the guy the equipment. Do something to the guy, support him. And if all of that fails and none of that's working, time out. Just stop the job because it's too dangerous to continue. So we can put in all of these different paddings. No one's going to, and I'm not saying that we leap all over people for making these decisions. There's often a reason why, and we want to know why. That's why you have the conversation when you do an observation. Precisely mm -hmm. right. Okay? So we get into all of these things, but to take and remove even the notion of holding someone account, that's wrong. I, gee, I didn't get the feeling that, that I don't get the feeling from, from what I read and um, from people I talk to in, in the kind of, to use your word, new, new, the new view camp, that, that they advocate for the removal of complete accountability. It's more, it's more having, uh, to use my own kind of phrase, correct accountability, which, which I think pretty much, I think everything that you've just said, I've, I feel like people that are huge new view advocates would probably agree with everything that you've just said. It's, it's about having context to the reasons to why accountability. And it's been like, right, did that person just make a really bad decision based on their own behaviors, for example, or did, did we create a system that, that forced them into that position to make that decision? So basically, again, who's accountable? Is it the business slash the system or, or the person? And, and, and I suppose when I, when I kind of look at, to, to use the word safety one, for me, it's like, it's not necessarily behavioral-based safety. It's more bad safety. I don't know if, if you would agree. Like, I think, I think we're arguing here over good safety and bad safety, not so much hop versus BBS or SD versus safety two or, or whatever. It's actually a good application of, of risk management, safety management, whatever we want to call it and bad application. Um, kind of, I mean, part of the problem with the new view people is every time you ask them a question to try and be collegiate, to try and work this all out is they refuse to answer. And it's a real problem. And it's kind of part of the atmosphere that led to the writing of the article. They just mm. refused to answer every question you ever asked. I mean, you saw the question I asked on the weekend. I would love to hear this distinction between these observations. And then it all got, was made personal. And that has been my history with that since I first began to get involved with it three or four months ago. Do you, do you think... A lot. I imagine they would say the same from, about what so they get from. In terms, from and, and, go on. So whether or not it's bad safety or good safety or whatever, um, I don't think that's really what it is. Uh, to me, all these new views are safety one. There is nothing new. There's one or two bits in there that are very controversial. So the issue we've just discussed comes from this mantra that's constantly pushed that we mustn't blame the person. Okay. People are the solution, not the problem. And that's addressing that. So people literally take that thing and everything else is discounted. So, and on Friday we heard it 
where the BBS guy was talking about someone who'd done something and ended up talking about accident investigations. It wasn't BBS versus Hop at all. It was an accident investigation and it turned out whether you actually um, blame the guy or not. And the BBS guy saying, well, you know, I'm hesitant to, you know, I really don't want to blame this. But, and, and, and I'm like, the guy messed up. If the guy messed up, he messed up. The fact that the company should have given him a chance to explain himself tells you there's a culture of fear. So we take this into safety culture. So where you've got a culture of fear, it's a real problem. And on the safety culture work that I did, that was published in 2019, a culture of fear loaded onto seven different types of accidents from potential SIFs to actual SIFs, serious injuries and fatalities, to lost times and all sorts. So what I think the safety two guys or the new view people are trying to address is the culture of fear, but they don't say that. So that's a different conversation. It's much more than a just culture. So we were in the middle of COVID. People are now just going back to work. What have we got? Is it Graham Parker from I said the other day when I put it, uh, uh, one of the um, seven broken safety culture features is profit before safety. Graham Parker rolled that one up into dash for cash. And I thought, well, that works. So we're going to have this dash for cash. And then when people go to work and say, well, actually, this is unsafe, they say, get on and do it, or you're out. Because guess what? There's, I mean, here in the States, there's 36 million people unemployed. There's loads of people who take your place. So now you've got that peer, you've got that pressure, that um, culture of fear. And I'm not begrudging. I have great sympathy, actually, with a lot of what Decker says. An awful lot of sympathy for it. Um, but the way they're doing it, the way they're going at it, I don't agree with. And certainly underneath all of this is this thing of um, the anthropological approach with complexity theory and resilience and underpinned all, which they've said explicitly, is shine. Okay? So shine is an interpretive view of safety. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of the question I asked on the thing the other day. Shine, I came across shine in safety culture work. There's Golden Bond, who's at Delft University or, or wherever he is in Holland, um, who has a model of safety culture that was published in 2000. I have a model of safety culture that was published in 2002, uh, in 2000 as well. And that talks about the reciprocal relationship between systems, behavior, and psychology which is Bandura's, originally it was Bandura's work. Well, Shine's work is about this kind of iceberg, upside down iceberg, or like a pyramid, and it says you have invisible, uh, taken for granted assumptions that guide everything that we do in every organization. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll see how that one works. And then he talks about espoused values as the middle layer, and then he talks about artifacts, so people wearing PPE, posters, the safety things we do at the top level. And I've always been, well, which one works? Which of these models is best? And another one model in there, just to complete that, is James Reason's um, informed culture model, where there's five bits, learning culture and so on and so forth, that go into that. Well, it took me 30 years to produce evidence that the safety culture model that I had uh, put forth to the profession 
was valid. It was valid and it was reliable. The two golden standards in science. Is it valid? Does it measure what it's supposed to be measure? And is it reliable? Does it measure it every single time? Okay. Mm -hmm. So we proved this. We proved that it worked. But we'd also collected, the way that we got the data was we'd actually incorporated Shine's work and this cultural model as a way of getting the information and then working the data to the seven broken safety culture features and then from there to the tripartite model, the reciprocal model. And when we looked at all this, we've been measuring deliberately these, we tried to make visible these invisible assumptions about safety and we did that and we did that successfully but when we went to put it against and correlate it back against the different types of incidents none there was one that came up assumptions about the stories told which loaded along with a couple of other variables there was not one and there was 15 of these things there was not one of those assumptions i'm sorry there was eight assumptions not 15 there was 15 top not one of those eight assumptions loaded up on any of the incidents and could explain that was the underlying reason for those incidents. So Shine's work has no evidence to prove it. And so, and that was from my perspective, from what we deliberately tried to do it. When you look in the wider academic uh, field in the extant literature, I think there was one study that's anecdotal that might support it, and that's it. When you look at my reciprocal model, there was Lund and Aero in Sweden in 2004 that looked at all the different types of accents across Sweden and said, this model works. Then there was Lefranc in France, this model works. So there's been four or five large scale studies that have proven my model works. Equally, there's four or five large scale, large scale studies that show James Reason's model works and can predict accidents nothing for shame so now when you look at these new view models what do we see they're all underpinned by shame they're all anthropologists they're all sociologists they're all doing qualitative research none of them are doing quantitative research none of them are trying to reduce injuries per se and if we look at i mean we've asked for independent evidence which is how we come to this stage where we are today because nobody would give it so last week, because I was on this thing with David, I thought, how can you get to the evidence? I thought, well, hang on. Hop was in GE. And they, GE, General Electric, has been doing Hop since 2012, since January 2012. So that means there must be a history in that company of incidents and incident rates that we might be able to get through their CSR reporting. So I went and had a look. And there's gaps, but I got the, the stats for 2011. And then I've got the stats up to 2018, I think it is. And when you look at that, on average, there's a 2% drop per annum in the lost time injury rate. It goes up and down. It fluctuates in reality. But on average, it's a 2% reduction per year. Well, if you just applied consistently your safety management systems, and you don't do anything else, if that's all you do, you would expect to get an incident rate of around, a uh, drop in your incident rate of about 10% year on year. And on that basis, the, the lost time incident rate should be roughly 
Currently, it's around about 0.53 or whatever it was the last number they had. So that was hop. So you think, okay, we've got a, got a feel for this now. Hop's not working. It's not reducing the injury. Whatever else it's doing, it's not reducing injuries. So then we say, all right, well, what about safety differently? So Decker quotes Mitchell Services. So you go to Mitchell Services. Yes, they had a decline in injuries for the first three years. Now it's bouncing back up. You know, okay. So then we look at Origin Energy in... Um, these are both Australian, these two companies. But we find there that in the first year of operation, the incident rate went up from 2.2 to 4.5. We don't know if anyone's been killed or maimed, but we do know that the incident rate's doubled. So therefore, safety differently is not working. Is, is, that, not at, a big, is that not a big jump to, to look at that one indicator of their, their lost time incident indicator to, and to say... I'm looking at the pattern. Not I'm not looking... I'm trying to look at the pattern because they're not giving us the evidence. So I'm yeah. scrabbling around trying to find this evidence. Okay. I'm looking at APMT and I know Kevin Furness went from Vodafone in 2013-14. He went to APMT 2014 um, and he's been there since then. And I look at there and I see that their incident rates like a yo-yo. They're still killing people. It's pretty much the same year on year. So that's not working. Then I look at Vodafone, who after Kevin left, introduced the life-saving rules. They reduced their fatality rate globally within three years by 80%. So as much with the best will in the world, whatever configuration of what and the practices that are going on under this new view banner, it's clearly not impacting incidents as much as it should be. And we talk about BBS. There was a lot of debate and all of this kind of stuff about BBS back in 1990. But BBS people could say, well, actually, look, we've reduced the injury rate in that company by 80% inside one year. In that company over there, we reduced the injury rate by 50%. And we could point to the data. New view cannot give you a handle on the impact and then they say well actually we're not trying to do that because the new view approach and if i can just read this it comes directly from the safety differently um it comes directly from safety differently website and it says the new view approach uh, quotation is a group of principles or organization beliefs that shape our programs our tools our behaviors and language we are looking to adjust the organization's shared beliefs around blame around error around the definition of safety the role of the worker complacency risk normalization contextual influence failure the importance of learning from normal work brackets dot 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 and the list goes on close brackets with the end goal of creating more resilient systems that is new view in a nutshell and i'm looking at that and i'm saying what's it actually trying to do well it's going to save the world it can do everything and anything <laughs> and what difference does it make if the system's more resilient or not in the meanwhile while they experiment 
and why will they advocate this and people run away with this and do this because you've got anarchy in here as well where i'd love to come back to the anarchy piece okay people are dying people are getting hurt people are being maimed safety is not an experimental laboratory we are talking about people's lives we're not talking about chocolate bars we're not surely, talking surely about everything's manufacturing experiment and surely everything's an experiment in the beginning though dom surely uh, in in the beginning behavioral based safety was an experiment surely what that was was an experiment on if i get if i go through the accident and i can find the common un underlying behaviors across these accidents in other words 20 if you uh, there's usually 20% of the behaviors explain 80% of the accident so you look for those 20% of behaviors, you put them on a checklist, and yes, you try, and it's an experiment to see if that's going to stop people being hurt. But it's a direct thing from one behavior to we know it's been involved in incidents. Can we control that? Can the workers do it? Because you give the system to the workers. You don't do it to them. You do it with them. And that's exactly what worked. Now, if these new view people said, here is a process. So I talked about hop the process what is the actual hop process on the ground for the worker well from what i've been able to ascertain and people can tell me i'm wrong but from what i've been able to ascertain you have a pre-job briefing well that's safety one we already do that you might call it a toolbox talk sometimes they're done well sometimes they're not but the principle is you have a pre-job briefing okay you go to the job and then you do uh, you look for human error traps and you get them under control before you start the job. So in other words, you're doing a risk assessment when you get to the job site, okay. And then you take a time out and you pause at some point through your job. Are you still concentrating on the job, guys? Are we still vigilant? Is there any risk? Have we created any risks? Are we still on track for the plan? Okay, great, carry on. So we carry on. And then there's a random behavioral observation. So someone comes along and does a BBS observation and they'll have a, a conversation and they'll give feedback or whatever. And then you go on again. And then at the end of the job, there's a post-job briefing. And the whole point of that whole sequence, apparently, is to increase the workers' vigilance about what they're doing while they're doing the job. But that, on the ground, that is hot. That's it. In practice. What's different about that and safety one? Well, uh, to be honest, I, I assume that somebody who's a hop expert would probably be say that that's not just hop, but I, I don't, I don't personally have the arguments for, for, for that either way. If I'm, if I'm honest, uh, probably uh, that specific defense would probably be a, a bit out of my depth, unfortunately. But, but it was I written kind by of, Andrea Baker on Safety differently. Okay. And I think we kind of come to the, to this is probably tied in quite closely with that, that kind of role of people and processes is quite similar to what you're talking about. And is, is there not that argument from everything? Even if what you've just said is the hop kind of process, for example, and I couldn't say where it is or isn't. So we'll go off what you've said. It's, does it not just still feel like we're just forcing the people to just 
act a certain way. We're saying, right, you must act like this. You put those golden rules in, whatever you want to call it. You must behave in a certain way. Um, but I feel like it's in, in, that, in that new view place it is, and that kind of people are the solution, not the problem. What they're trying to say is that, in my opinion, and this is only from my interpretation of conversations, et cetera, is that, you know, by, by kind of creating systems and processes and management systems, whatever we want to call them, that kind of, in essence, control the worker, we're kind of stifling their natural ability to problem solve. Uh, in, in, in essence, that the human race is essentially the most intelligent thing we've got out there. But yet in the workplace, we force them to work in one specific way. Um, what, what would be your kind of point of view on that? And I understand that's a little bit of a shift, but I'd be interested. Yeah, no, that's fine too. So we're talking about the rules and the procedures and bureaucracy. Okay. I've, yeah. I've never overly been a great fan of the golden rules, mostly because of the way it's been implemented. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because that says that if you break the rules, you will be sacked. And you find that companies don't do that. And when you get that inconsistency, then you don't know where you are. If you're going to do it, be consistent, sack everybody. And if you've got to replace your workforce, then so be it. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay? But that's never done. So that's always been my beef about golden rules. I but like if, them. Just on, on that quickly, if the golden rule was followed, so, so it was, I broke it, I got fired, the you broke it, you got fired, they were consistent with that. Would, would you agree with it on, from that point? Yeah, I would, if it was consistent. So, okay. so... And does, does that requ- then require a process around it to kind of get the context to be sure that it was the behavior that was the thing that was wrong and not the systems or the process or the environment, et cetera? Yeah, exactly. And, and yes, there was all, there's all of that that goes with it. For me, the okay. issue and the point I was trying to raise was consistency. That okay. was really what I was trying to Okay. Okay. So, and yeah, there's all the other bits and bounds. And I've actually, I mean, I can think of sites in the UK where I've put my neck on the line with the CEO and said, don't sack that boy because, and he says, why? I need them to show me respect. And I say, they will show you respect when you fix the issue that led to that guy behaving that way. Can you hand on heart say that your systems were 100% perfect in that context for that guy? And fair play to the CEO on that particular one that's in my head. He said, okay, hands up. I can't, so I won't sack him, okay? So we saved the guy's job. But it was, you know, if the guy had proven it, that that he had done that and broken everything deliberately, then sure, he would have been gone. And we're collecting data. I see this through the peer software, that literally up to 50% of behaviours are choices. It's not as clear-cut as everyone says, you know? But anyway, let's go back to this thing of rules and bureaucracy. Okay, so mm-hmm. Decker quotes Al, Al, Amal Berti, I think his name is, okay, about rules and whatever. Well, Amal Berti's interesting. He looked at fishing captains, masters, out at sea, in storms, chasing the doesn't matter how dangerous it was, they didn't want to give up chasing the fish. Mm-hmm. There were no rules. Fishing, as we all know, deep sea fishing is one of the most dangerous things consistently in the top five industries. Mm-hmm. So he talks about this and about their competence and they know the seas and they know this and they know that. So it's very interesting because the, the next piece of research I found on it showed that when you put in a safety management system, you halve the death rate by 50% in the same industry, doing the same thing. 
So that's a big one, isn't it? 50%. We've stopped 50% of those people dying who were dying before. And when a master makes a decision, he's not just talking about his own life, he's talking about the life of his crew and his vessel. Okay? So, so. so what, you're, what you're saying there essentially is that, is that Decker has picked the bit out of that report that suits his... his oh, absolutely. Writing. He's done that over and over and over. He talks about vision zero and about how bad that is. And then he quotes a piece of work. And when you actually look at that piece of work, charity or something or other i can't remember the name of it right now but when you look at that work it looked at the top 20 uh, construction companies in the uk of some whom were doing vision zero and some who weren't and they looked at the differences between the two in terms of accidents and would you believe the vision zero people had one accident more than the other ones and everything there on is now based on that and i'm like you kidding me and there was a guy called gerard uh, Loop, I think you pronounced his name I might have got it wrong and I apologise Gerard if I have um, mm -hmm. but he actually said um, well actually what this piece of work shows is that it's how you um, implement safety that's important not the visions not the, not the visionary statements okay it's what you do that counts which is quite right but Decker says, whoa, that, mate, that's why we don't do Vision Zero. And he took it to task left, right and centre because it didn't have intellectual underpinning from all of these different philosophers. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm a scaffolder, I'm up there, I'm likely to die from somebody doing something. And I've got, well, hang on, time out, guys. Uh, what's your philosophical bent on this? Who's your favourite philosopher before you kill me? Ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Okay. So no, got, rules work. Yeah, go on. Rules no, work. Go on. What were you going to say, James? I, I just rules work. Does it does it not? Yeah. Look. So I'm I'm just trying to trying to think of like the the audience for, say, Decker's work or Eric's work or or anybody's work is not the scaffolder. It, it's the person that's trying to take say for example eric's work and turn that into something we can implement at work which which then communicates in the language of the scaffolder so i suppose if we were to get any work we could get some of you know some older be, be behavioral based safety academic based work and if we give that to the scaffolder it would probably have the same response would we not it, it, i'm just trying to think of the the audience of, no, of, wouldn't. of that work no, why not? No, I mean, we were able to translate everything that we did at UMIS. We translated for all of the construction workers. We put it in their language. We made it easy for them to do. It's got too simplified in many places now. Um, but I was listening. I, I actually listened to Sidney Decker talk, do his talk, uh, where he waves my paper up, where Britain hasn't reduced the serious injuries and fatalities for 32 years. And I was listening to him when he was talking to the Resilience Alliance organization. And he talks about anarchy. He obfuscates anarchy. Okay. And there's all of these guys, and I'm answering your question because you're right. He's talking to the safety guys who are going to implement. And one of the most interesting comments that I heard in that, and it, and it absolutely surprised me was about woke safety professionals and i'm going woke what's that about what's a woke 
and I'm trying to look this up online. And basically, these are people who see injustice in absolutely everything and anything. To be woke, you've got to see injustice. So there's a whole gaggle of these people um, that are going on. Um, uh, political, it's, it's about politics. So Becker talks about anarchy, okay? And he's, he kind of obfuscates anarchy. Um, because he's, anarchy is about the overthrow of government, okay? Mm -hmm. So anarchy is about the overthrow of government. Decker says, let's cease managing safety. Let's put everything down to the guys at the sharp end, okay? That's yeah. what he says, okay? So, and he talks about horizontal interactions and about this, and he's saying that he's going to... Um, he, he wants to put in systems. Hang on a second. Let me just see if I can find exactly what he said. So what did he say? He said, he says, anarchy is right. Right. A set of ideals. Cause he's written the book, the safety anarchist. Yes. Yes. Right. So he's got, he obviously he says a set of ideals and ideas and horizontal coordination without a central authority where the entity defers to workers' expertise at the sharp end of operations, which creates the possibility of disrupting protocols precisely because there's no top-down authority. It's exact words. Okay? Mm. Then you look at the Oxford English Dictionary. Well, what's the definition of anarchy? And that says belief in the abolition of all government and the organization of society on a voluntary cooperative basis without recourse to force or compulsion. So James, imagine this, you at the age of 21 were, were received a very large inheritance and you looked at the people in your town and you decided that you were going to be very nice and you were going to create, some work for everybody and you were going to create a manufacturing environment, which you did mm -hmm. you put all your money into. Okay. You employed all the people. And then someone comes along and says, you know, why is that James in control of everything? It's not right. Let's get rid of James and let's put all the responsibility and all the decision-making for this company down in the hands of all the guys at the Sharpie. Now, what would you say to that, James? Uh, well, that, if, to answer that exact question, I would obviously be, well, I've invested all my money into this, so what, obviously I would have uh, a, a reasonable say. But, but I, I believe um, that, that maybe that's taken a bit of Sydney's work to an extreme. And, and I, I actually feel that the, the phrase of the word, the, the use of the phrase anarchist, is is probably over overshadowing what he's trying to tell I, I i wonder and i've not spoke to sydney but i wonder whether you know it was intended to be eye-catching more as it was to be taken as a literal as a literal no. kind of process you need to you... listen to these debates i'm sorry james you have to listen and listen to the debate from decker's own lips of what yeah. he's saying I was stunned. I'm absolutely stunned mm -hmm. with what he's coming out of. Okay. Sydney's about Sydney. I don't know if you know safety differently is a book. It's a film. 
It's also Sydney Decker's trademark. I don't know yeah. if you know that. I was right? aware of that, yeah. 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 The whole thing's about making money. Sydney has said and declared in this thing with these woke individuals, they have a responsibility to be anarchists in their organizations. They have an ethical and moral responsibility to create anarchy in organizations. I'm like, are you serious? What on earth is going on? So this thing is a movement. Safety too is a movement. Whole Nargles, oh, by the way, is canceling um, resilience. Whole Nargles now moving on to entangled systems within quantum physics because David Woods and himself had decided resilience is too slippery. So they're canceling all that and moving on because they can see what's going on. This has now become a movement. This movement is dangerous. Someone you, is going to pay so the you price think, with their life. So you think he actually advocates full-on anarchy in a business? No, no rules, no Absolutely. nothing. Just every, everybody just do whatever they, whatever they damn well please. Exactly. That's you exactly genuinely believe that's what he, he, he advocates? That's what he did with Woolworths. That's what the Woolworths experiment was about, where they tore up all the rules and all the procedures and said to the guys, you work it out. That's exactly what he did. Mm. And rules do you not and think there's a middle ground thing. somewhere? Oh, I do. I've, I've got my own thing. And I, that's like rules and procedures are very, very important. Okay. Companies mm. have to have rules and procedures. They have to comply with the law. There's the law. They have mm -hmm. to. There's the, the insurers who are ch uh, charging them an awful lot of money based on their incident rate, whether Decker or Newview or whoever likes it or not. The insurers are there charging you money for your poor accident rates. Okay, they haven't got time for experiments. They're charging you money for this. Then there's the guys down on the shop floor who have got rules and procedures that are bloated. We know from research in New Zealand mines, Lawrence, 2005, that fewer high quality rules and procedures are much better than lots of poor quality bloated ones. When yeah. we were there, I can remember being in Spondon in Derby in 1995 and trying to get over this problem with these rules there. They're conflated with legal legalese and what you're supposed to do. And we stripped them out. And on every machine, we ripped out the behaviours that you needed to know to operate that machine safely. And we stuck them on the machine. Mm. End of story. It got so over I, the problem. But we didn't feel create like, anarchy. Yeah, I feel like that's the point. That, that I'm trying to make, Dom, is that is, is there are value to some of the things that, that they're talking about in these in the new view camp, to use your words. It, it, it's that that kind of safety decluttering, that reduction of bureaucracy. Um, you know, you've just said it yourself. Is is that that bureaucracy piece is overpowering in in the current day jobs. Um, you know, I, I don't some have places. research to back that up. I, I can tell you, I've seen it with my own eyes of just pointless paperwork that we do left, right, and centre that actually delivers no value whatsoever. I feel like all of all of these systems are advocating some very similar things, and I actually feel like we're we're, we're losing the point here by just debating over each individual system. I think you're right in some ways, but what my point of all of this 
is everything that they're advocating is not new. They basically give him okay. permission to safety people to do stuff that they can already do. <laughs> yeah. It, it's I, I can see your point behavior. there. It's cult behavior. They're creating a cult. When you've got woke safety professionals who are being encouraged to be anarchists, you're creating a movement. It's a cult. And part of the problem with people like me, I'm not the first person to have questioned all of this. Mm. And I know that there's a lot of people who have written to me and told me they've been vilified for asking questions. It's a movement. It's about, and where's this movement going? What is the purpose of this movement? They're proud to have a movement. But what's its purpose? Where's it going? What's this thing? I would hate my kids, and I've got five kids. I would <laughs> hate them to be treated like this and to be urged to do things like this. And I'm like, why? And I understand everyone's looking for the magic pill, the silver bullet, where they don't have to work and all the world's problems go away. And as my grandmother taught me, I lived with my grandmother until I was the age of three. And she said, if you want anything, go and get it, because that's the only way you're going to get it. Life's not going to be kind to you. It's not going to give you everything you want. You want something, then go and work for it. Simple as that. Hmm. Safety's no different. But these gurus are offering, well, promises. Let's put it that way. So on, on, on that kind of point you, you, you said a minute ago about it, it, it nothing, it's nothing new, um, which kind of solidifies my point to say that, you know, we're all kind of debating about very similar things here. But if, if it's nothing new, and then to kind of use your, your previous comment from earlier on in, the, in our conversation as to there's no evidence to back up these new, these new, these new view systems. But if it's nothing new, mm-hmm. then surely in question that that means that there must be evidence. Because if it's nothing new, the evidence of the existing system working is proof that the new systems work because they're, they're the same. Did that, did that make sense? Like, so, yeah, so which, which one is Friday. it? There's no, sorry? No, Ron said that on Friday. Okay? Yeah, yeah, that's very so, similar to what Ron said, yeah. Right, I can give you a bag of sugar, I can give you a bag of flour, I can give you various bags of dried fruit. And I can give that to guy A, guy B, guy C, guy D. Okay? I can give you all the ingredients for the recipe. I can even give you the recipe. But are all your cakes going to be the same? No. Probably not. Right? Right. So, as I, I did allude to it earlier, there is a configuration of the way things are being done under this new view banner, whatever they are, okay? But they won't say what they are. They refuse to answer any question because according to Decker, that's safety one thinking. You don't do that. So you don't answer questions. So people like me and everyone else asking is like, well, what do you actually mean? And then when they're told, they say, yeah, but we already do that. No, you don't. You're not understanding. What is it we don't understand? What is it? I mean, how many years have I been in BBS looking at observations, James? 30 years? Yeah. And how is it that after a 30-year period of doing all of these different types of behavioral observations in all sorts of different countries and all sorts of different cultures and reducing accidents and stopping people getting hurt, all of a sudden this weekend, I don't understand what a behavioral observation is. How is that? Mm. 
it's just not the point where they're saying that previously in the safety one camp you you essentially do the same in the safety two camp but you look at it through through from a different point of view or more of a positive point of view or a different lens to use their words is that is that not what what they're kind of pardon no they're saying they're doing random behavior they they say they are and i'm saying what's random what's different if there's an unsafe condition it's an unsafe condition if some people are behaving as a group and they're distracted, well, then they haven't got the eyes on task. Well, we can fix that. If a guy is doing something that he's blithely, he's not aware of the risk of maybe there's a load going over his head and the, the chains are slipping or something, then you can intervene. It doesn't matter what the target of the observation is. The principle is you're doing the observation. You're going to deal with whatever you find. The mistake everyone makes about BBS, there's three models of BBS, okay? There's the, here's the behaviors that we as managers have defined, and this is what you have to do, and we're going to observe you against them. That was model one. That was from 1980 to roughly 1995. That was the one where the US Union said, you're blaming us, you're blaming the workers, you're not fixing the systems, okay? So... Mm -hmm. So BBS morphs roughly every 15 years. That's what HOP is now. HOP is the politically correct way of doing behavior-based observations, but they say, we're blaming the system. So the unions like that. So yeah, we'll do HOP. They don't like that BBS stuff because you actually give accountability to people. They're the same thing, the same kind of targets, the same, almost the same identical actions, but it's much more politically acceptable to say it's HOP than it is BBS. So then you've got, as a reaction to the, the, lead, the top-down approach to BBS, we got the bottom-up, the employee-led. So if you took up in Wilton, for example, on JV06, on, on the cracker, we had a union um, BBS process going on there nigh on 20 years. And they were fixing pff, thousands, ten. They've fixed thousands, literally thousands of corrective actions each and every year. They reduced the injury rate and squeezed it down. And it wasn't very high to begin with, you know, like seven accidents a year. And we got that down to zero. Uh, we were in food factories. Uh, who was it? Heinz? They're Heinz now. They were Bird's Eye, whatever. Um, cheesecake factory down in <coughs> Bridgewater. Um, Oakhampton. They got the British Safety Council sword of honor within a year. They were all unions, but they were all employee-led BBS processes where the employees looked at the incident rates, looked at their incidents, extracted the behaviors, tried to focus on the 20% of the behaviors causing 80% of the accidents, and then went off and doing a BBS process. But instead of having one guy, uh, everyone doing an observation on everyone else, we had one guy in a work group who would do one observation a day for up to six months. The checklist only ever lasted six months. We would then change those checklists because behaviors change. We've already fixed a load of behaviors. What's the next ones that are likely to cause accidents? So we did that. And that meant within a work group of six workers, it might take three years for everyone to be, become an observer. So they would have six months stints each. And then that was roughly from around about 1995 to roughly... 2000 2010 so roughly 15 years and then the pendulum swung back because we realized that if you have all employee led then you're leaving out management now that's a big problem because management control the resources you need them both in there 
So then we develop this cultural model, what we call a safety partnership, where the, the leadership and the workers work together to resolve all these issues. That's what you want. That's the one that's the most powerful. That's the one where you can get the leaders to monitor their behaviours, their safety-related behaviours, and you can get the employees looking at their safety-related behaviours, and any corrective actions get fixed and monitored by everybody. It's a brilliant process. It works. Okay? And it fixes all the system faults and everything else. It works. But apparently, I don't understand this. And I was also told that when I did say, I mean, you were on the Quantic thing, obviously, and um, Timo said, oh, that sounds like safety differently. I'm like, well, we've been doing this for years. So I find this all personally very frustrating, that the safety profession is being sold something it already has. And that was my original starting point with all this. We're already doing all this stuff. Why do we need to call it safety differently? Why do we need to call it safety too? Why do we need to call it hot? It's safety because people castigate me for creating arguments and not looking at all these different ways. You're kidding. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember the SIF? I don't know if you remember when the SIFs came into the safety profession, but roughly about 2012. And it had been taken about 20 years and from Dan Peterson to Andrew Hale to Fred Manuel to Tom Krause. And it was after the Deepwater Horizon in particular we're saying, well, how is it we can give these guys a safety award but blow up the platform? So, and we're saying, okay, um, what we've got is that there's, there's something wrong with the Heinrich Triangle. So the Mercer Group, they went away as an industry-led group, nothing to do with scientists. The industry group went away, they looked at it, and they said, okay, we've got this slightly wrong here. What we need to do is focus on the top of the pyramid, not just the bottom. There's two different ways of doing this. And if we focus on the top, then we can get these potential or these potential SIFs and actual SIFs, we call them SIFs, serious injuries and fatalities. We can get them dealt with and we can get them out of the way. So without any drama, without any fuss, they did their research, they got the findings, they presented the findings to the world and everyone went, oh, that's interesting. Well, how do I do that? And off they went. There was no anarchy. There was no anything and dramas, there was no angst, nobody's got upset, there's not been any ill will created. Somebody asked a question about it online, another safety profession say, hey, look at this. So what we what really of what we've got here is the it's a distinction in a sense, in my view, and you can agree or disagree, James, it's sociology and anthropology versus practical safety. That's mm. what this is. And that's why the likes of Ron Gant keep saying you don't understand the theory. And like I keep saying, I'm a practical guy. I'm basically, I'm a scaffolder who does something different. I've been very lucky. I've been able to do my degrees. I've been able to look at safety. One of my edges has always been able to look at safety with a tradesman. It's what made me a little bit different to a lot of academics. Tim Marsh once said I was a maverick in safety. It turns out I'm mainstream. I'm more mainstream than most mainstream. Why? <laughs> because the things that I was talking about and saying that we should be doing are now norm. They're the norm. Mm. Do, do, do you think, like, so what you see in, in the kind of, in the day job, would you agree that that was good enough? 
what is that practical safety like not your day job like every every business that like so all the business i've worked for i wouldn't say they were safety one safety two i'd just say they were just like this compliance culture that we're in now is is not and i'll, and I'll get to my point it's not the is not eat any of these systems. It's just it's just pointless kind of bureaucratic kind of uh, cover my ass safety that that we've grown into in the industry. So in essence, it's like what, how I kind of sometimes I have kind of described all of these new systems, etc. It's like the different ways of saying similar processes. So it's different languages or or tones or perceptions basically and, and granted we like move, move moving away from from the anarchy thing but let's just say say hop for example like you've said there's clear similarities between bbs and hop so it's like right we've we've done bbs and bbs has actually worked and a lot of companies have, have understood it and they've got it but there's also a lot of companies out there that didn't understand it so the easiest way for me to describe this because you know you have to bear with me i'm not a scientist or anything like that is if i was to compare what i do so i have a podcast obviously for health and safety i'm not the only health and safety podcast out there there's quite a lot um and and then what people say well, how do you well, you've got another competition a new podcast has come out and say it's not competition and the, and the point of view i'm trying to make there is not from arrogance it's that there are people that enjoy my style of communicating and there are people that don't enjoy my style of communication so is on that same aspect so these these systems like say sydney discussing uh the, these philosophies in his tone and his manner and todd doing the same thing and eric doing the same thing and yourself and tim doing the same thing um but all of the different systems like i've said a communicating very similar things but from a different point of view is that not just a good thing it can be. I mean, I've, I've got no beef with a lot of the practical pieces of their puzzle. What I do have a real problem is, is they refuse to answer any question. They say it's a theoretical or a fundamental approach or whatever. To me, it's nonsense. Okay. Because we've shared, I've shared my stuff. I've even got books and put them on PDF and put them online. I have a resource center on my websites. I'm always giving away information. I was giving away information about BBS 30 years ago, much to everyone's annoyance, okay? <laughs> but if they really, really want to help and they really, really want to get people on board, share the information, be helpful. Don't blank people out. Don't tell them they're idiots for um, not getting this. Don't belittle everybody. I mean, would you believe right now some of the main advocates of safety differently, who are scientists, have written papers that they've submitted and got published in Safety Science that calls everybody who's come before them intellectual dwarfs because we haven't come up with a brand new theory every five minutes. That's the level of debate and language. So it's easy to have a go at me for daring to question new views and give all these other guys a free pass while they castigate everybody for their lifetime's work for the last 30 years. So, so essentially what you're saying is, that, is they threw the first punch, now you're just punching back. It's not about first punch. This is about refusing to share. 
It's mm. about selling what's already available. If they've got something new, tell us. Mm. Tell us how it works. Show us. So if think, it works, we will all embrace it. Mm. Do, you, do you think that behavioural-based safety is misrepresented <laughs> in, in, say, for well, example, I'll take an example yes, of, of Sydney's book, um, field, field Guide to Human Error. <laughs> I think some of the examples he gives in there of behavioural-based safety, I would probably, and I would quite, quite happily, if Sydney ever listens to this, have him on and, and, and throw the same question at him. Um, it, I think he gives examples of bad behavioural-based safety or bad utilisation of behavioural-based safety to back up his opinion um, and his system. Do, do, you, do you feel like it was misrepresented in the, in the kind of literature? I think it's deliberate misrepresentation. I, I really genuinely think it's different because in Australia, the unions don't like it. There's a worldwide thing with the unions. They're anti-BBS. These people, these gurus are in it for fame and fortune. The last thing they want to do is annoy their constituency. So it's easier to slate everything else. And yes, BBS is misrepresented. So is human error. And human error has been misrepresented for years also. So is ergonomics. People have got their different takes on it. They've got their different um, safety culture. Some of that's dismissed. Andrew Hopkins. There's no such thing as safety culture. It's organisational culture, as if that solves all the problems of definition within safety culture and refuses to recognise, um, absolutely refuses to recognise that there's the same problems with organisational culture. So, I mean, I've asked in terms of BBS and misrepresentation of unions, I've published a paper in 2004 saying you want to get rid of BBS. Well, that's a bit daft. Who's going to take responsibility if someone dies? But how about we have a dialogue? So Nancy Leeson or Gleeson, I think her name was, the unions have, I've asked them year in, year out, hey, come and have a debate about BBS. No, they run away. They don't want to talk about it. We've had, in Britain, we've had the unions and BBS, um, where the, the union shop stewards, and I was in the TGNW, Transport and General Workers Union, and we've had the shop stewards round who says, mm, yeah, this is really good. This is great for our membership and goes back to the head office in London and says, BBS is junk because it's all politics. So there's deliberate misrepresentation. I would gladly sit and talk with the unions about anything to do with safety. Yeah. And that's interesting because that, so, that's pretty much what Tim said as well. When I asked him, you know, what, 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 what do we need that to, if we were going to pick one thing to, to, to kind of fix everything, and his point was to, to remove politics, which is interesting because you kind of said the same thing. Um, so, but what is it, so you've never had kind of, you, I'm assuming for what you're saying, you've never had key feedback as to what they don't specifically like about BBS? No. And they just, I mean, I've heard Frank Goldemont because I was invited uh, in, to Spain in 2016 to, um, where was it, uh, the famous place, Castile, Castilla, um, with Edgar Schein and Goldemond and Marx and Grote and all the gurus of safety culture and heard, literally heard and saw the presentation from Frank Goldemond said, BBS, you don't want to do behaviour, you don't want to do BBS because it's all about holding the handrail. I'm like, what? So the new view very often conflates um, personal injuries that are caused by behavior 
with system um, problems as in Texas City, which is the 15th year anniversary today, by the way, um, Texas City and Deepwater Horizon and Piper Alpha. So they take these big catastrophes and say, you're focused on BBS, but you still have these big catastrophes. They're two different things. One's process safety management metrics, one's personal injury metrics, okay? Granada, that's where I was in Spain, not Castile. Um, so there's deliberate misrepresentation across the board. And in fact, and when you actually go through the new view and you go through it academically, which I will confess now to the world, I have done. And I have submitted to a safety journal. Okay? Mm -hmm. And I've gone through all of the arguments academically. And I come across so much where somebody's work has been taken and has been twisted. And where I've seen it, I've tried to quote the same people to give what they've said from the alternative view. So we shall see how that all pans out. I've got no idea if it will even get published, you know. So, but I've submitted it and I've done it. So when I go, when I'm talking about this, although I'm the villain of the piece for questioning it, everything I've done and everything I've said is based on fact. It can be substantiated. Uh, I mean, I, I'm really struggling as to where to kind of take this conversation because I feel like we're just rehashing old ground that essentially that you admit that there's similarities and everything but in essence it's the manner in which it's been communicated out in that it essentially belittled previous work it feels like that's the reoccurring thing here yeah it's partly that i mean companies get me to talk with the unions yeah uh, over safety issues where, the, where there's problems but the problems with all of this is they, the, the real problem with all of this is one is the manner in which the, the message has been delivered. Oh, grant, yeah. okay? It's not been edifying, it's not been good. And then, of course, I'm the one who's the villain of the piece and being tired because I saw it on LinkedIn the other day. Yeah. So, yeah. but the problem is these guys won't answer a question about their new view. They refuse to provide any details, they've refused to provide any evidence if you ask about safety differently oh i can't possibly tell you the answer that's safety one thinking so immediately castigated safety one you talk to some of the people here who are selling all three views you can never pin them down which view they're talking about so they switch from one to the other and try and run rings around you and it's like you know you're making this very frustrating I thought we were all in this together. I thought we were in the safety profession to save lives, not to argue about this approach or that approach. There wouldn't be any argument if they answered the question. Mm. Do you do you do you feel like 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 you you've re you've referenced yourself a couple of times now as the as the the so-called bad guy um, or, or maverick, as some people have called you? And do you feel like? part of it now is this has gone on so long in that your kind of passion for it let's let's, let's call it passion and the reputation kind of procedure so they they just don't want to entertain a conversation with you or has it always been like this from from the beginning 
you never ever refused well, I can't to say... engage with you. No, in, in terms of this debate, they won't engage. Okay. Okay. But I've never been shy at coming forward. My yeah. brother's been, I've got a brother who's been injured so many times, so seriously. I myself nearly had my arm ripped off in a cement mixer. Mm -hmm. The difference between me um, and a lot of other people is I'm a tradesman. I look at stuff from a tradesman. For me, safety is personal. Okay. I've been praised by a lot of people for raising a lot of the questions that I do. It's not all negative. Okay. It's not, oh, you're aggressive. I'm passionate for sure. So I don't know if you recall a couple of years ago, I and everyone introduced workplace stress into the safety yeah. professions armory. Okay. Yeah. Now I've got nothing against looking at workplace stress, but I have a huge problem with it being dumped on the safety profession because it's not in their remit. We're not trained to be mental health people. I've got three degrees in psychology. It's a psychiatrist job. It's human resources who cause all the problems. And are you as a safety guy going to go to your human resource director and say, you're causing all our stress problems. And the next thing you know, you're looking for a new job. So mm. I've been outspoken on that. Not everyone's agreed with me. I haven't ended up fighting anyone over it. We haven't had bad blood over it. Yeah. I've been allowed so to say you've, my you've had the same the same kind of, of clash of opinions in in a different subject and received a better response from the opposition. Oh, a much, much better response. I mean, That's and that was to do with the workplace stress. In 2016, I questioned the whole thing of the safety surveys, the safety climate. I said, guys, mm. for 40 years we've been doing this, but they're not linked to safety performance. Why are we doing this? Mm. And I wasn't flavor of the month with the academics then. Golden Bond then, and so on, because I questioned everything they're doing. Yeah. And so it's not new to question different aspects of safety. The no, intent behind it, in case anyone really misunderstands this, is are we going to save a life? Because if what we're doing is not saving our life, why are we doing it? And if you read the paper that I published in 2019, when I looked at the safety culture constructs and the impact that it's had on accidents. So this thing where I looked at the Britain statistics for 32 years, um, where we haven't made an impact on the serious injury and, uh, and fatality rates, really. It's 24,000 a year, pretty much as an average constant, since 1986 through 2018-19. Mm. And I'm questioning that. And when you look at the, the, the three days, which is now seven days data, you see we've impacted that by 77%. And I've said, guys, what are we doing? Why are we only impacting the minor injury rate or temporary disabilities? Why are we not getting to the more serious stuff? And the answer is, we're not doing SIF in Britain. There's very few com companies in Britain, to my knowledge, and I might targeting serious injuries and fatalities using the approaches that everyone knows over here in the US where most of the work's been done and they, they're doing it here so I'm sure there's some US based or owned companies in Britain that are tackling it doing it or whatever but as a, as a whole they're not doing it. the profession's not doing it and I've been pulling my hair out for 
since 2014 I was writing in Safety and Health Practitioner, why aren't we doing this? I've been the IOSH conferences. I'm sure they really love me in IOSH because they have their annual conferences and I'm saying, who's talking about serious injuries and fatalities? Nobody. What are you all doing there? And so I, I think passionate in my own way, different things, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with that actually a lot. I feel I've, I've, I've done, I think I've done a podcast on this already. It's like it, it, the profession does seem to just be accepting in the UK. I, I can only speak for the UK, um, be accepting of the average of 140 fatalities we have a year. Like, like that's, that's a given that's, that's, that's just life. Now you're not going to get better than that. Um, I, but, but then to that point, would, would it be a valid argument to say, you know, what we've been doing BBS for ages or we've been doing safety one, let's say, let's call it safety one. We've been doing safety one for ages and we're still killing 140 people. So safety two may or may not be the answer, but let's give it a damn good go to see if it is the answer. Surely, and I suppose this comes back to what you were saying in the beginning about it being experiments, but surely everything's an experiment in the beginning and, and, and to kind of address that, that's fact of what you're quite rightly passionate about. And I, and I would wholeheartedly be on that side of the fence with you that we, we shouldn't be killing it, especially in a first world country. We should not be killing 140 people a year on average for what the last five years. So something's got to fix that. So, so if, if, if safety, in America, wanted... it's 5,000 a year. Sorry. In America, Sorry. it's 5,000 a year. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and, and to the same point, to the, to the same point then. So it, it, if, if safety one has got us to this, this plateau, to use a phrase, um, what, surely an experiment in safety two is, 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 is only a good thing. Well, yes, I would agree with that in principle. But then I look at the data from GE since 2011. We're nigh on 10 years. Yeah. They've got no evidence. So the point is that the experiment is... Where's the evidence? Yeah, okay. So what you're saying is like, yeah, granted, you've you've done your experiment. It's not work. Let's go for the next experiment. Let's do some... Let's go back. I mean, BBS. Let's implement BBS properly. I reviewed a paper um, a while ago looking at a BBS project in the UK on some kind of road construction. They've Mm -hmm. sent the guys out with these cards. The guys are filling them out every day. The data's coming back. The guys don't know what to do with the data in the office. And the whole thing's a bag of spaghetti. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Do it right. That's the issue. Do what we do and what we already know. Do that well. And that's basically what safety too is saying. Do what we already know, but do it well. Mm. Don't invent, we- reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Do what we do and do it well. Do you think if, if, the, if the manner, in, in, and I put this kind of question to you, if the manner of the work for from Sydney or Eric or Todd or any, any of those kind of in that safety two camp was, was more acknowledging of, of the behavioural-based safety didn't, in essence, fail or it's a bad system or people are intellectual dwarfs or any kind of, um, misrepresentation or, or kind of derogative terms, if that didn't exist and, and that they were just clearly acknowledging that the problem is not necessarily the system, but 
the implement implementation of the system that that actually you you would probably not have a problem with their argument and you maybe would you do you think you would see yourself in the safety two camp if they were saying that i know that's hypothetical but i don't think there is well, to be honest i don't think there is a safety one safety two camp i think there's a safety camp to be very yeah. honest okay. i like that if i'm honest I like but that. what i would say is if you're advocating something show us how it works and then show us the impact don't keep running rings and running in and out of theory and this back the other and going back on to um snidey comments if you like or provocative comments that's not what it's about decker's naturally provocative and i met him in 2014 in london it's the first and last time i ever met him i quite like the man i think he's very funny the Americans didn't like him. They wanted to shoot him and he had to run out the back door of somewhere because he'd been so provocative. They literally <laughs> had to get him out of the country. Okay? So Eric Holnagel. I don't know Eric Holnagel. I know that he's a scientist. He's been working on cognition and these factors for a long time, his entire career. I'm not going to knock his career. He's obviously done some great work. I don't agree with his approach to resilience, but I'm not going to knock it. He believes in what he's doing and he's trying to do the work and sell the message. I just happen to disagree with it. That's a different issue. Okay. Hop. Hop, we know works because it comes from the nuclear laboratories and it was implemented in the nuclear laboratories when Todd Conklin was working there. He retired in 2012 and he took the stuff with him. My beef about Hop and resilience, they, they took all the ideas from Robert B and his work, which was Hoff and run away with it and i mean todd conklin gets somewhere between 10 and thirty thousand dollars an hour for telling people to do this stuff mm. stuff that they've already got and can do that's free you go google robert b oil and gas 2002 the paper comes up for free you can do all of this stuff but there's a guy who's given away his material these new view people will not give out the material of what it is they're doing they i was going to say that to be fair todd todd does give a lot of stuff away for free especially on his podcast he gives away his slides about his approach but he doesn't tell you what to do and how they do it right. and let me tell you let me something else i did when i did this academic piece of work i came across a study from resilience review 2019 or whatever it was they looked at 427 resilience engineering studies uh, Conclusion, no impact on performance. Then there was another guy, Pillar in Australia, who looked specifically looked at 46 studies related to safety management. His conclusion, there is no published evidence to show this works. This was a repeat of a conclusion that was done in 2007. There's no evidence for any of this. That is the biggest problem of all regardless of how you think of what Decker says or doesn't say or whatever, all of these views, there is no evidence. They're all doctors. Todd Conklin's a doctor. He's a PhD. Well, he's a PhD. Hey, mate, go and publish up your research. Sidney Decker, you're a scientist. Go away and publish quantitative data. Eric, you're a psychologist. Go and quantify the results of your experiment. That's what we're all in this for. It's what science does. It comes up with a hypothesis. 
it tests that hypothesis. It reports back to the scientific community on what it found and what the results were. That's the piece that's been missing from this whole show going back to 2004. It's the quantitative evidence. There is none. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine that they would probably say there is. Um, but unfortunately, we, um, you know what I'd like to do one day is have a, a nice big panel of yourself, Sydney, Todd and Eric all in the same room. Wouldn't that that'd be nice? And let's just let's just get this shit done. Yeah, and bring along bring along Tim and a couple of others like me yeah, who are Tim would be good in there. Nice balanced. So it'd be nice and balanced. Yeah. And would to let, nice. I think we actually I will be having a debate in June, mid June, with Todd Conklin, with Kevin Furness, who's at APMT, with John Austin with Jason Anker and Rosa Carilla right. as part of this virtual EHS Congress. So I think there's a panel debate on day one and then I'm talking about SIFS as a keynote on day two. But there is some debate going on there. Is that through the Congress? So is, that, who's, is that through Paul Clark's one, is it? Or is there that you go. Through... That's it. It's, yeah, Paul's. Interesting. Um, in June. Awesome. Awesome. Is that the North America one or is that? No, it's a virtual yeah. one now, isn't it? But it would have been the North America one. It's virtual. Yeah, but it's virtual. And it's fine, you know. I mean, Ron and I kind of tried to debate this the other day, but we didn't really debate. Yeah. I think I've, I mean, I've, I've spoke to Ron a few times. And as you know, I tried to get... Uh, yourself and Ron on, on a call together and I think Ron's point is that it, from from Ron feels that we can't have a, a sensible debate because he feels it just gets personal quite quickly which I suppose is is your, is your or, or also your point in that you've tried to get get a conversation going and and, and you've also been attacked so I think I think the first thing we have to do is all hold our hands up and say there's there's dickheads on both sides of the fence uh, doesn't matter who who's a dickhead or I'm not I'm not putting names. I'm just saying there are always assholes on every side of the fence. Um, but but the point we've got to get to here is that we, we are trying, in in my opinion, all of us, regarding what what camp you're in, it doesn't matter. All of us are trying to do the same thing, surely, and stop killing slash maiming people, hurting people, whatever at work. Surely well, that's our so. value. I would hope so, but I'm not, I'm not so sure that's the goal. As I said to you, when I read that, you look at the safelydifferently.com website, yeah. you look at all these new view approaches, and you look at the language that's on there, and you see what their goals are on there, it's frightening. Absolutely frightening. Mm. Right? Interesting. The goal of creating more resilient systems. Resilience, as I said, is taking over nearly every discipline going. I, I kind of, I summed it up to my wife and she gave me a weird look when I said um, resilience to safety is like a black hole is to the galaxy. So, so what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your concern about resilience then? Because I, I, I'm quite attracted by the concept of, of building a resilient no, business. It's, it's a general, right, it's a general goal. This thing, the ability to be successful and un or, or successful in expected and unexpected conditions, it's a goal. 
my PhD was actually goal setting. Okay. This is a general goal. It's not accountable. It's not specific. It's not measurable. It's not agreed. It's not realistic. It's not time bound. But it's goal setting. Okay. So it's a general thing. You can never, this is so slippery. This is like having an eel, um, literally, and up Northampton way, you're all into eel hunting, yeah? <laughs> you can get an eel out of the, the, I can't remember the name of the river there now, um, in Northampton. We used to have a, a river uh, run. Oh, God, it's just left my head as well. The, um, the, the, um, how, I can't remember. Nen. Nen, that's it. Yeah. But you would get eels. So this resilience thing is like this eel. You keep trying to grab hold of it and it keeps moving and it keeps sliding off. You so, so your point it. there is that these people just keep making money and money and money and actually you'd exactly. never be able to That's measure exactly. as to whether they're actually delivering any value. Right, because think about this. It's a group of principles or beliefs and we know beliefs don't load onto incidents. We know that from the research. But we're looking to adjust the organization's shared beliefs around blame, error, the definition of safety, the role of the worker, complacency. How do you measure complacency? Risk normalization. How do you do that? Contextual influence. How do you do that? Failure. Well, they say be positive. The importance of learning from normal work, learning organisations and so on, and one of the broken safety culture features uh, involved in many catastrophes is ignoring lessons learned. But there's another big list that goes on behind this with the end goal of creating more resilient systems. Now, let me tell you something about resilience. Resilience is an epiphenomenon. It's not an object. It's nothing. It cannot exist in and of itself. Resilience is a byproduct of a process in exactly the same way that safety is. So all that safety too has done is replace the word safety with resilience. That's all it's done. But this it's exactly the same phenomena. Same argument then not be if, if we can't deliver value or measurable systems within resilience, but the resilience is the same as safety, then surely we can never deliver a measurable system within safety either. I'm just playing devil's advocate, but. But, well, I, I would dispute that. I believe that you can, and I think lots of people have done it, and there's evidence to show that. And, and I would whether, agree with you, but my, my point being that is, is, is who are we in this position to say then that we can't do that in resilience if resilience is quite a new phenomenon? Because there's 427 studies that show there's no impact and it's difficult to do. It's just because of it's difficult doesn't mean it's wrong. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate. No, I, just... no, no. Yeah, no, I, I get where you, what you're trying to say and I appreciate what you're trying to say. What I'm saying is it comes back to where we started this whole conversation. There is no evidence. Yeah, okay. But there was no evidence for light bulb work until the, until it worked. There's evidence for safety one <laughs> practices. There's safe. There's evidence to show safe. You install a safety management system, it works. You look at you look at the uh, global oil and gas industry and their accident statistics since Piper Alpha, and they've come tumbling down, mm -hmm. absolutely tumbling down. 
Because they and, and I don't and I don't deny that. I don't deny that whatsoever. Yeah. But what, so what? I suppose then what is my my question would be is, is what is it that breaks the the fatality plateau that we were talking about earlier? I don't deny the previous evidence of safety one. I don't de- deny any of the stuff that we've seen that you've referenced because I've, I've read it, seen it, the same as you. Um, or probably nowhere near as in depth as you actually, but you know, you know what I'm saying, but, but something is still not working because we are still, we are still killing, like you say, 5,000 people on average every year in America and 140 something average on, uh, let's be blunt, James. Let's be very blunt. Some companies do care about safety because it's cheaper to pay the actor than the widow for the, the victim than it is to put in money to control safety. This sub. The construction industry has a problem because of its contracting arrangements. And in Britain, I understand it's got even worse because now everybody's a contractor or a subcontractor or a subby of a subby of a subby of a subby of a subby. I, w- I would be inclined to agree with that, if I'm honest. It is, it's an absolute right. f- mess. So it no longer employs people. It no longer does apprentices apprenticeships it no no longer cares particularly about the people that it takes on because they're all contractors so there are inherent structural problems within industries i don't dispute any of that there are some safety professionals who have a title that say they're a safety professional who have never been outside of a book in their entire life (laughs) there are other safety professionals there are other safety professionals who've come up the hard way. They've worked on the tools. They can talk with the boys, but they don't necessarily know what they need to be doing. And then you've got a whole group in between who are trained, competent, qualified safety professionals who have never been taught how to target serious injuries and fatalities. They taught the law and how to get round or help companies negotiate the law. Then you've got another lot of safety professionals these days doing to health and the environment and mental health and know nothing about safety. The mm. profession has splintered. It's grown too big for its own boots. It really, really, really is not sure of itself anymore. It's asking yeah. a few people to do far too much. But to get to the point, if you've got the tools and the techniques and the methods to reduce the fatalities, it basically comes down to observation, whether it's BBS or whether it's HOP or whatever it was, because you're looking to for those behaviours that has the potential to maim and kill. That's mm-hmm. what you're trying to stop. We're not talking about just holding a hammer. out. But mm-hmm. having said that, out on the North Sea on one of the platforms I was at, they had seven people falling down very steep steps from not holding the handrail, who in every single time could have broken their neck. Yeah. So holding the handrail is actually can be a lifesaver. Yeah. It, again, though, that comes back to that context piece, doesn't it? It's holding a handrail. It, it can be a can be a, a a solid state rule that that you cannot break on an oil rig, and I think that would be reasonable and a practicable approach. Um, However, right. you know, saying everybody must hold the handrail on a flight of stairs in a, in a calm collective office in London you, is probably not a reasonable or practicable uh, rule to have. Well, can I challenge that right there, James? Let Go me on challenge on. that. Right? 
my wife took one of my daughters to college that uh, was in a different country and she went on an aeroplane, the pair of them, and my wife went to help my daughter move in and settle into her new apartment just before yeah. she started college. And on their first day, I believe it was their first day, uh, or perhaps the second day, but she's coming down the stairs, she gets to the last step, she's holding the handrail, she fell over and broke her ankle. Right there. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, you know, these things happen. Mm -hmm. So, now there are people, I, I think the real distinction, James, really what we're getting at, instead of going all the way around the houses, is what are we focusing on in safety? Are we mm -hmm. focusing on controlling minor risk or are we focused on controlling major risk that kills people? And I know Sydney, as much as I've had a pop at his safety differently stuff, and I know so, so, um, Sydney's heart is in stopping the fatalities. I know it is. Okay. okay. So what are we as a profession targeting? Yeah. Yeah. What are we targeting? Well, are you asking me? Uh, what I, th I think we should be targeting is those serious fatalities, in my opinion. Um, but then right. I think there would be well, a fair argument. From a, and a, but I think there would be a fair argument from, from most businesses to, to say, well, we, we're going to receive civil litigation if we don't focus on the, the lower risk stuff say for example your well, your wife who i hope has healed well <laughs> i'd like to add um uh, uh, you know breaking her ankle that that's going to receive a, a reasonable civil claim which then we we kind of understand then has its implications so i don't think it's as simple to say yeah. which do we have to pick a camp do we have to pick one that we should focus on well i i would i would say how about as a profession we focus on these serious injuries and fatalities? So we've pretty much got those under control, then move down to the next layer. I agree. Do you know yeah. how much an accident costs? I couldn't give you the number now, if I'm honest. I remember being told a long time let ago. You, let me give you a little formula from OSHA, okay? That in 2004, they worked out the direct cost of a lost time injury was $29,000. Mm -hmm. The indirect cost was a multiple of 10 which is $290,000 plus your 29. So you're looking roughly $318,000 as direct and indirect costs for a lost time injury. So then you have to ask yourself, hmm, well, how much does it cost? How much does this company have to invest to make $318,000 profit? So you say 10% profit margin. Okay, now we're talking about $3 million to invest and you say well why are you doing that and the answer is because an insurance company doesn't lose money it will pay you out this year but your premium next year is going to be that plus yeah so you, for every one of those serious injuries that we're talking about we're looking at a cost of roughly 3.2 million dollars per and these are 2004 figures hmm. so how many bags of powder or how many drums or barrels have you got to move how many widgets have you got to make to cover 3.2 million dollars for the privilege of hurting somebody mm. it doesn't make sense your accident sure your liability sure it might cost you a hundred thousand it's a lot cheaper than three three point two million 
So, that, we're getting to the point here then, like, which is it's a shame. It's a shame it took us so long to come to this because I think this could be another hour long conversation. But, and, and, you, and you kind of alluded to it when you reference like the, the education around the safety professionals kind of upbringing is more focusing on, on, on protection of liability and, and the law and not so much focusing on those, those serious hazards and risks, et cetera. So in, in essence, like, like you said that we've, we've as a possession profession have come become too big for our boots essentially. But is this, this problem now we've gone from talking about safety one versus safety two, actually, if we were going to root cause analysis, this to, to use, a, to, to use that phrase, we'd probably come down to the education of professionals at the beginning as, as, as how we are taught to be is, is the overarching problem here, which then, which then maybe led people like Sydney and Todd to, to kind of be inspired to do their work because what they saw, they didn't like. Well, I don't dispute that what they saw they didn't like. They didn't like the accident root cause models. They didn't yeah. like a lot of what they see. They didn't like the bureaucracy. They're certainly having to go at safety professionals right now because they don't like the safety professional. They think the lazy professional is, well, they think he's lazy for one, which is very insulting. Um, I just think that there's, I mean, I, I look at IOSH and I know they're doing this competency wheel thing right now. 69 different competencies. They can't even label the competencies properly. They can't even assign the, the subtopics to the right one. And they're basically mirroring uh, ISO 45001 and they're pushing it because it's going to make them an awful lot of money. But is it any good? Is it going to help them? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a survey on it. The membership will have its views and it will have its say. I think it's a fate accompli like many others do. I think it's going to be foisted on the profession again. And the proof's always going to be in the pudding. Does it stop fatalities? And if it doesn't, then was it worth the while doing it? I would, mm. I would suggest that perhaps as a profession, we need to go back to the basics. And it's something I've been saying for a long while. And it started out with that when we started taking on board uh, mental health stuff and stress. And uh, the basics, in your opinion, being... Sorry. Pardon? Uh, sorry to interrupt you. The, the basic, you said go back to the basics, and in your opinion, the basics would be? The basics would be walking the floor. What can we do to get eliminate the hazards? Let's go back to the risk assessment, which is the kernel of all of this. Yeah, risk assessment process is the kernel. It's, it's what I grew up on in safety from 1992 onwards, was yeah. risk assessment. Yeah. Let's get it right. Let's get it done. Let's keep, keep it simple. Let's not overcomplicate things. And yes, I understand about the health and safety myth. You can't have conkers at school because they're not safe. I mean, how stupid can you get? <laughs> um, you know, there's all of these things floating around, which really doesn't help. There's, there's a couple of things, things you're saying, Don, which, which you know what, absolutely massively resonate with me. Um, that go back to the risk assessment, walking the floor. That's the things I've been saying for a, for a while. But it's, it's interesting that it's it's interesting because you you say like you know what Sydney and that have said where they you know they think the safety profession are lazy, um, which is massively insulting. But it's only insulting to the people I think that are that are not lazy and therefore it doesn't apply to them. Um, but I would agree to a point that what I see 
I'm disappointed in. I don't see a safety professional, a safety profession, sorry, that I'm proud to be part of. And that's part of the reason why we started this, pro- this, this podcast um, and why we call it what we call it. Um, and that's where the perception of health and safety has come from, that health and safety gone mad attitude and perception that we have has come from, in my opinion, those lazy professionals. But what you're talking about is that walking the floor, going back to the basics of risk assessment, we've lost that. We, we don't do that anymore. And you, you're 100% right, I would agree, on that, on that point. Is, is a risk assessment, in my opinion, is an unbelievably amazing tool, if we do it right, on the work, on the work, in the workplace, um, that we don't do it anymore. We treat that like a... Uh, a tick box is what it is, which which yes. with what Sydney's work is and what Eric's work is as well. So we're coming back full circle to say, well, we're all saying the same thing here. Perhaps in different ways. Yes, yes, no, whatever. Perhaps in different ways, but certainly, <laughs> if we can get back to risk assessment, I would be very, very happy. If we just stripped back safety, take out all the. I mean, are we in the safety profession or are we in the mental health profession? That's one question. If we've got to subdivide this profession, then subdivide it. The, the, the journal's the same, you know, when you look at safety science, the journal and whatever, there's yeah. so many areas and topics of safety. It's time to split because yeah. clearly we're, we're doing a lot of things badly instead of a few things well. Yeah, um, I heard you say that on the quantity. Then we're satisfying. Yeah, so we're satisfying. For me, if you want to get to an excellent, um, excelling uh, safety culture, which I've helped people do or helped companies do, it's three ingredients that we need to concentrate on. And that's good safety leadership, of which a servant leadership style is the most effective and the most powerful. Uh, employee engagement, wherever and whenever you can em- employ the, uh, get the guys engaged in safety, do so try and create deliberately create uh, a safety partnership and run under the banner or the ethos of safe production is our number one priority it's not safety or production it's both together safe production is the number one priority and then from there make sure that we fix things because a hazard that's been identified and left for another day causes the workforce to withdraw from safety we know that from research and then that way we can convince people we are genuinely serious. Look, here's an issue. This is what we've done. This is how we fixed it. Is it working for you? And a servant leader, all of those people with all this overcomplicated stuff on leadership, a servant leader, all the, this is one simple question that he asks people, is there anything I can do for you today to help make your job safer? That's it. That's all you've got to ask. That's safety in a nutshell. That's stripped back right to its basics. But it works. The seven features of a broken safety culture are uh, profit before safety, a culture of fear, ineffective leadership, uh, non-compliance to rules and procedures. Management, by the way. 80% of the catastrophes are caused by management. Um, Miscommunication um, about safety. It's not two-way, it's all one-way. Uh, competency which is what we've just discussed and competence to determine if someone's competent it means they're an expert in their domain and then the last one is ignoring lessons learned those seven things have been involved in all the process safety disasters 
going back to the 1970s. Equally, those seven things are also implicated in most of the serious injuries and fatalities. So personal injury side, process safety management side. That's it. That, there's, there's safety right there. That yeah. little bit, go and focus on those and we'll save, we'll save a lot of lives. I, I I love that, and I, and I think when I, I sit here listening to everything that you've just said in that little clip, um, and and I think about when I, I just had a conversation on Saturday with um, a gentleman who runs another podcast called The Hop Nerd, um, and and these are, he's obviously talks primarily about hop, um, and we had a conversation, and I kind of challenged him on that point, is to say the same as I've been kind of challenging you is essentially we're talking about the same things here, but everything that you just said, I think resonates massively with hop, probably more so than most of the other systems. Um, but I, li I like that. And that's probably because we've been talking for a long time. I have lost um, pretty much all track of time because we've had so many technical issues. Um, but I would, I would probably say that's an amazing place to leave it. And those, in those kind of three things to focus on, which was, great actually fascinating nice to hear as well actually that kind of get back to the floor get back to risk assessment back to the basics safety leadership engagement and and fix things <laughs> it's lovely and simple and i love simple yeah and this is the same message james i've been putting out since mid 19 well 1990 when i first got into safety dom i i thoroughly enjoyed that conversation that's it, it, it this is a debate that that I find I find it more frustrating. It's the the debate itself more than more than the actual systems uh, for me, and and the kind of the lack of um, the lack of kind of forward movement that we have in this kind of debate. But and I, I just really like how in this conversation we've we have gone really in depth on some stuff. And I'll, I'll hold my hands up. At first, I just thought, as you were talking away, and I just thought, shit, I'm out of my depth here. I should have got someone on who knows what they're talking about to, to kind of discuss this with Dom. And I could have just sat in the background, press and record. Um, but as it come round, I think it was, uh, it was nice to bring it back round to those basics. So um, just to kind of bring this to an end, do you want to kind of uh, just give us a, a little plug to your business and, and any kind of work or books that you want to, that you want to kind of plug, feel free to. And um, obviously anything that you reference, we'll, we'll link in the description below. Right, I, mean, I guess if I want to plug anything, I would say that, and I was trying to get this through the other day, that peerleader.com incorporates hop incorporates BBS, incorporates safety culture and incorporates SIFs in one package. And it's done so for 10 years. So um, we developed it with originally with Shell on a Shell project in Ireland. Yeah. Um, it was a different way of doing BBS. And then with me being a safety researcher, I see stuff like the SIF man. I went, wow. Oh, hang on. They've missed a trick. And what they didn't do, when you look at the SIF movement and where we've added value, is we added in the system and the cultural piece. And they look at precursors and um, exposure categories, but they don't go any further. And when we did it for a client, we says, well, what if we went down into the cultural attributes? Would this, we had potentially 400 different variables that the client was going to have to try and control. 
And we said, what, what if, can we simplify this? Can we go underneath and look at these system factors that are based on culture, which is the people factor, the psychological piece, which is the human error, uh, the situation piece, which is the, um, and the, the behavior and the situation piece, which is kind of the leadership and the management stuff, you know, and the systems, and then the physical environment. And we distilled it all down into six things. We presented it to the client and they looked at me and they said, you have just saved us tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Right there. And we know we've done it. So if yeah. anything, I'd like to plug that and my um, safety culture roadmap book. And that's, uh, it's called strategic safety culture roadmap. It's a great book. It gives, you know, those seven things I was talking about the, broken safety yeah. culture features mm -hmm. that's what's in it how to tackle them all how to do a human error um thing how to analyze incidents from a human error perspective um so you know it was a great book it's very simple i don't think it's much more than 100 pages mm. very simple <laughs> very it's straight to the point you know um and it's a scaffolding got, book i got a book on well, kind of, and I mean, I've got a book here on BBS, how to implement BBS worldwide. Mm -hmm. And I think we've still got a hundred odd copies knocking around the office. So if you want to flog them for me, let me know. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll, we'll flog anything, mate. We will. <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I mean, I'll link. Go on. It's this book. What is it? Behavioral safety: A framework for success, two thousand nine. You know, I mean, literally, yeah. we've got a hundred copies. I'm an old man now. James, I'm, I'm kind of wending my way into the pastures because I want to write a novel. That's my goal. Before yeah. I snuff them, that's my. Before I pop my clogs, I want to write a novel. Okay. So for me, all of this is distractions now. <laughs> and you got all them books you need to get rid of. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Dom, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Okay, people, did you like that conversation? I hope you enjoyed it. Um, what did you think? Let us know on social media. Come hit us up on LinkedIn, Rebranded Safety, Facebook, Rebranded Safety, Twitter, because it's special, is Rebranded Safety, um, because, you know, because Twitter. Um, come follow us on Instagram as well. There's not much on there yet. It's brand new. Um, uh, so we're trying to spread our social media um, scope, so to speak. So come and hit us up on all those social medias and just come and have a chat with me on LinkedIn if you want, James McPherson. I'm always up for connecting and chinwagging, as you can tell. Um, otherwise, don't forget to check out next week's episode where I reflect on my conversation with Mr. Cooper. It's a good one. I'm not going to lie, it's a good reflection, a lot to talk about. Don't forget to go buy some merch, people, www.rebrandingsafety.com. Catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a shameless 
sponsorship clip. In all seriousness, guys, we partnered up with DRM Group. You know David McLean, he's been on the podcast time and time again. We absolutely support his message and he's got a brand new online course to help you. I'm gonna let him tell you all about it now. The brain can be trained to think and behave differently, to think in more positive and optimistic ways. And there are steps that you can take to train your brain to feel good for good. And we call this lasting positive change. Through our 16-day program, which includes daily videos and action sheets, taking you no longer than 15 minutes to complete a day, you will learn how to move away from thoughts of anger, hopelessness and frustration to a place of mental well-being and positivity. Okay, guys, so if you're interested, you can click the link below and get a discount, special rebranded safety discount, full disclosure. We get a little bit kickback from that. So at the same time as improving your mental health, you can support your favorite health and safety podcast YouTube channel. I'll let you get back into the content.